welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of It Chapter 2, starring James McAvoy, Jaden Martell, Jessica Chastain, Sophia Lillis, Jay Ryan, Jeremy Ray Taylor, Bill Hader, Finn Wolfhard, Isaiah Mustafa, Chosen Jacobs, James Ransom, Jack Dylan Grazer, Andy Bean, Wyatt Olaf, and Bill Skarsgård. Directed by Andy Machete and in theaters right now. Nick, you and I just walked out of the theater like 15 minutes ago, and now we're over here at your house talking about It Chapter 2. So this is a first on a lot of levels. We actually watched something together, mm-hmm. and now we're recording it four feet from each other. Well, i got to correct you there. It's the first full movie we watched together. We're always going to keep on bringing up the specialist as his long-lost <laughs> treasure, because he did watch like the last half hour of it with me, because he got, he got to my house, and I was really behind on trying to watch it, so I'm like, just bear with me, so... Well, he's half true, but... Yeah, yeah well, this is the first one we're releasing to the public, and this will be a little different episode, because obviously it sounds different, we've got different mic setups, we're not going to mm-hmm. do our usual thing, because this movie's in theaters right now, and like I said, we just walked out of it, I didn't have time to do a plot summary, we'll, if you've seen it, or you have any interest in it, you probably should watch it before listening to us talk about it, because we are going to spoil the heck out of it. Yeah, and as while it's, you know, very different than the miniseries, it still kind of follows the same type of structure as far as... The phone calls, them coming back together, they're yeah. getting there, them all encountering it on their own way, and then them getting together and taking it on in the end and then defeating it. So Exactly, I mean, yeah. All, the, all that happens, they yeah. just get there a little bit of a different way than the book does and then that miniseries did. And, yeah, and if you go back through the archives, you can listen to Nick and I talk about the miniseries. And then beginning of 2018, we finally got around to talking about it, Chapter 1, as it's known now. I didn't see that in theaters I sort of waited on it. We came around to it, and, you know, I stand by my review of it that I thought it was fine. It wasn't that great. It didn't really engross me into it last time. So I went into this with, like, zero expectations at all. I just wanted it to be somewhat entertaining. And the only thing I knew going in was that it was two hours and 50 minutes long. Yeah, you seem to, I can tell you're getting older, because now you seem like to be the first thing is like, oh, this movie's this long. I'm like, oh, Jay's planning his bathroom breaks. So. <laughs> well, it's it's more of the, can my back take it? But we picked a good theater that has really comfortable chairs. So that's, yep. shout out to Our Town Cinemas in Davidson, yeah. North Carolina. So Nice theater, other people that go see it, not so much. We had some talkers behind us. and The first time in the history of me ever going to a theater, I actually had to get up and go get an usher, because this guy who was sitting next to my wife was on his phone all the time. So... Yep, but it didn't ruin our experience. But anyways, um, since we're going to kind of bypass the whole plot summary and we're not going to do the whole breakdown scene by scene, I figure probably the best thing to go is, out of it, what is your favorite parts, I guess, of this movie? I mean, the thing that I will give um, the Gary Doberman, the screenwriter, and Andy Muschietti, the, the director, credit for is the way they brought the losers back together is is different than the way it works out in the book. It might basically lies to them. And says, I just need you to come back to Derry. And they all show up and they have the big Chinese dinner and it's a big laugh and everything. And none of them know why they're there. 
at that point. As in the book and in the you know, the miniseries, that was a big deal. Like he told them, and then they had flashbacks. They have to be brought back together, and then he tells them, "Look, I've discovered this ritual with the help of Native Americans, which I do want to talk about that." <laughs> but what I really loved about it was how they each kind of had to go on a sort of a solo walkabout, and we got flashbacks with the younger versions that unveiled more of their encounters with it, and how they learned how to you know manifest their fears and ultimately conquer them, and how they each had to come up with like an inception totem as part of this ultimate ritual of Chud that they wanted to go through. I liked that. I thought that was smart. I thought the casting of the adults was dead on. Um, not only in lookalike, like the faces are really good, but mm-hmm. just the people that they got. I, I, I love James McAvoy in anything. Uh, so he's great. Jessica Chastain, same way. She will always get a pass for me because she's a great actor. I don't know Isaiah Mustafa from anything except the Old Spice commercial. I was going to say the Old Spice, yeah. Yeah, yeah but he, he's good. <laughs> he's not really in it that much, oddly mm-hmm. enough. He's kind of in it the, the beginning, and then he has a scene, and then he's at the very end. James Ransom, I've loved forever. He's a good character actor. He's one of my favorite things of the, the Sinister movies uh, as Deputy So-and-so. <laughs> um, he's, he's really good in that. And... uh uh, Bill Hader is the surprise for me because I, I don't dislike him. I just don't know his stuff. I know him from his bits on SNL, and he's been in a, a couple of bit parts of movies. He was in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and I thought he was great in that, but he kind of played the straight man in that. And so I don't know him in his comedy. I thought he stole the show and was hilarious the whole time through. And I don't know mm-hmm. the dude that they got to play Ben other than he looks like either he could be selling you workout gear on QVC or he looks like he's a pastor at like a megachurch. <laughs> And what that was surprising, though, especially with the actor who played Ben, was he has the same exact eyes as the, the kid version, yeah. even though it's like, okay, the kid's really big and pudgy and everything, and then he's like, you know, Mr. P90X and everything. And <laughs> they, they do like to show it off a little bit there. They had a kind of a shirt, you know, a scene where he's showing off a six pack and everything with Pennywise cutting into him. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's funny though, watching the back and forth. I'm like, I could actually believe that he could actually have been that kid if he discovered like protein shakes and a personal trainer. Cause right. he looks as the face structure and he's got kind of big bones too. So mm-hmm. it's almost like, yeah, the, you know, heavy set kid, but yeah, I mean, totally agree with what you're saying there. I think like out of it, especially, I think the most interesting and most, memorable scene actually has to be the beginning scene again. I mean, I think that's what anybody's going to, when they talk about it, mm-hmm. is the first thing they'll bring up is the Georgie scene that we saw in the first movie, whereas this movie has a pretty strong opening where we have like a carnival going on. There's just this carnival going on in Derry that's always in the background throughout the movie. I guess there's some type of festival or something going on. Yeah. And there's two guys, uh, two gay guys, and they're just going about enjoying their day, and they run into basically you know a group of four you know super violent homophobes who decide to basically beat them up Mm -hmm. and they end up beating them up really, really well. And then throwing one of them over the bridge where Pennywise scoops them up and bites basically into his rib cage. And it's not even the Pennywise part that I thought was brutal. It was more or less the beating that these guys gave to him because that was pretty brutal. And that was probably for me the hardest part to watch because it is somewhat true to life. If you watch the news or something like that, the way, People like to beat up on people that are different than each other. And, yep, yep, I just think that that was probably the most effective scene in the movie. And I think it's going to be one that's going to be probably the most remembered when it's all said and done. It's very evocative, that's for sure. And it's straight from the book. Like, if you've read the book, and I know you've read it several times, so have Mm -hmm. I, that's how the book opens, is on that murder. And that's what strings Pennywise back to, you know, life or whatever gives him power. And it's what tips Mike off to letting him know that, He's back ultimately. And mm-hmm. I, I thought the fact that they decided to include that one, that was the director, really strong choice, wanted to have that in there, but that they, they didn't pull punches with it. And they also let 
they let it be very clear what was happening, and you didn't feel. I don't know. It was, you're supposed to feel icky about it, and I did, but I thought it was well put together and well done, and it was not cartoony, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I got to correct you there. I've listened to the book multiple <laughs> times. I you, you read with your ears. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I know some people will be like, "Well, you didn't technically read yet. Yeah, yeah. I read it to you." But if it's someone, some old guy in a sound booth or minor monologue, it's all the same. But uh, yeah, I mean, I like I said though that with that scene, I thought it was really, really well done. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm just gonna, you know, as far as all the individual scenes with them coming together and stuff, and I liked it because the kids obviously had a stronger bond when you go back and you watch the kids back on the screen saying like, okay, these guys are all friends, and I guess the chemistry wasn't there with the adults, but it makes sense why it wouldn't be there because they've been gone for twenty some years, and of course you're gonna come back and it's always gonna be awkward around people that you kind of knew intimately that you haven't really talked to in a while. So I thought it kind of felt true to life when you see that they were you know kind of trying to get back into the swing of things with each other but yeah they played that well I, I'll, I'll disagree with you one thing that was the, my biggest complaint about the first movie is I didn't feel like those kids had chemistry together and I've watched it a couple of times since we reviewed it and I, I'll soften on that a little bit they, they definitely get along well I mean I think a lot of them have become good friends which is cool but they, they have some chemistry together. It just didn't gel for me the way that it does in the book and the way that it did in that miniseries. That's the best part of that miniseries. We both agree on that. The, the kids part of that is what carries that. When it turns over to the adults, it gets to be a little fast and loose and doesn't really work as well. Mm-hmm. The kids had much better chemistry in 1990, I thought. These kids, I felt like they had better chemistry in this movie with the, with the scenes they had. And many times, they're not even together. It's only in just small pieces where they are, but... I thought the adults gelled well because you got really good actors in there who can all play parts. And you didn't get people that are, I guess Jessica Chastain's a megastar and McAvoy in some ways, but he's always playing characters, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, there's one scene where he's having a flip out with, the, with Mike when he, they're talking about the Indian ritual of Chud and all this stuff. And I swear I'm watching him do his same performance from Wanted when they're trying to tell him he's a super assassin with a heartbeat of you know 500 beats a minute or whatever. He's the same <laughs> face. I'm like, ah, it's Wanted again. And I think I'm the only person on earth that likes that movie. But yeah, I, I thought the adults had great chemistry together, but they played the part well where like they, they didn't know why they knew each other. And I think Ben, Ben's character has the line of like, I don't remember when I forgot you. you know, or maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's uh, um, McAvoy's character, uh, Bill, that says that. But I thought that was a great line um, because that's really what's happened to them. And what we, what we learned is that they've all, you know, in some way or another, been rather wildly successful or they've got interesting careers. I think it's neat that they gave Denbro the, the idea of being an author who turned into a screenwriter and everybody hates his endings, which is sort of the joke on Stephen King, right? Like, they, and I think King has a cameo where he jokes about that. Best a lot of, of people do. Yeah, well, and we did too. I mean, we take, go back to our Stephen King shows. I mean, we talk about all the time that he can't stick the landing. Uh, I thought, you know, the, Bev's still the, the abusive husband and she's, you know, the business partnership where she's the fashion mogul. Ben's still the architect. Uh, you know, Richie's still this, you know, famous comic. Um, or I think in the, the book, he's actually a DJ, but they've, in the miniseries and then in this movie, he's, he's a stand-up comic. He's, you know, he's Bill Hader in real life. And so I, I like that they, they folded all that through for us, but they didn't spend too much time with them in their lives apart from Derry. And I, going in, I was afraid, like, am I going to have to spend 
30 minutes sort of watching everybody in their life. Uh, because that was part of it that really drugged down the old miniseries, I thought, was, I don't, I don't care what these people are doing. I need them to get back together and start having moments together. And they throw them in dairy pretty quick. And that's one thing, I actually, I will compliment the, you know, the screenplay on, is I like the way they cut out some of the stuff in the book that didn't need to be there. You know, with, you know, Bev and her husband, and her husband, like, tracks her down to dairy and yeah. everything. And then even Audra, who is Bill's, uh, Bill's wife, who... Mm-hmm comes back and then she ends up getting, you know, being the damsel in distress at the end with Pennywise. I'm very happy that that was all cut out because it just seems like that would be very superficial as far as what the entire, you know, I guess the thesis of the movie is, is about friendships and, you know, not being scared and, you know, all that. And yeah, yeah, very happy with that. But the one thing I will say that I wish that they did cut out that was included and they had an out in the first one was the Bauer stuff. Yeah. It was, for a movie that's two hours and 50 minutes long, and, you know, it, it was a long movie, you know, they probably could have saved a good 15, 20 minutes by cutting out his character. So, you know, it turns out he survived that fall in there. I'm going to say that Pennywise saved him. Yeah. I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to go with, because he came out with some of the dead bodies. He gets arrested. He ends up going to an insane asylum. You know, he gets, you know, blamed for all the murders and everything, very much like the miniseries in the book. And the same thing is Pennywise gets him out of the place to go kill the losers, and he ends up stabbing Eddie in the face. Eddie then stabs him in the chest, which, again, I have to think that Pennywise kept him alive because, yeah, he got stabbed pretty deep in the the sternum. I'd have to imagine that's got to nick an artery or, you know, your left ventricle in your heart. But uh, he ends up then going and attacking Mike. But in the change of it, which I'm glad that they did, is that he didn't hurt Mike enough where he had to be hospitalized. Right. Because that was always the part that bugged me in the book was, Mike was this big driving force that's going to bring them all back, and then he's got to set up the final battle over at the freaking, you know, you know, hospital and stuff like that. It just it was always a waste of his character and everything. So I'm glad to see that they why they had most of that in there as far as the Bauer stuff goes. Mm-hmm. It didn't put him in the hospital. So again, it's like you could totally remove the whole Bauer stuff, and you're not going to lose anything in the movie except for to make it maybe a little bit more of a, you know. Less of a running time, which yeah. would have been a little bit nice. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I don't think the Bowers thing forwarded anything at all. Other than it was a point when when Eddie's freaking out later on, and he does freeze up at one point when there's this spider creature on top of Richie, and and uh, Ben has to come in and help uh, save him. And you know Eddie's all freaked out about how he froze up or whatever, and Richie has to pep talk and going, "You're the guy who pulled a knife out of your face and stabbed Henry Bowers in the chest." So like it's part of that pep talk, but again, you could have done that with something else, with the mm-hmm. multiple action scenes that they have in this thing, and and not needed it. And the, the Henry Bowers stuff works. It, I mean, it's like watching a remake of the miniseries. They do the same stuff, except who he attacks and how it goes down. Yeah, well, I, I didn't mean it. Yeah. Luckily, they didn't include the uh, do- the put the. Uh, would they have a, a Doberman? That's not oh, yeah, Doberman. He, yeah, he you becomes the a pit, Doberman. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Or the pit bull that's all dressed up like a clown. I'm glad they eliminated that because <laughs> yeah. that was silly. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, he goes around and kills people and stuff. And I mean, I did like the stuff in the Insane Asylum with the balloon and him following it. I mean, that was really cool visual images, and I'm thinking maybe that's why they kept it in there. But, yeah, I mean, to me, it was that was stupid. They, I, they had Bowers dead in the first one. They could have just said he was dead, and they could have just basically, you know, no one was going to ask and go, no. why, why, who, you know, with all these kids being dead, you know, they were never going to go and ask that question. Yeah, where know? was Henry Bowers? Like, nobody is going to be out there championing that on Reddit or anything. Yeah, Reddit, or Reddit, basically so. saying we need an explanation about why these kids were killed and who they pinned it on. I mean, that 
You're nah. not going into there for this type of explanation. It's well, like, I mean, at one point, I even leaned over to you in the movie and I said, where is everybody in this town? Because <laughs> it's just these people walking around. Well, I'm thinking that they were at the festival because <laughs> well, the festival's going on. I actually, I, what I realized later is that that was supposed to be very early in the morning before everybody got to work. I I, I forget that not everybody goes to work as early as you and I usually do. And so <laughs> so it's not, you know, it, it wasn't everybody there. So I was like, okay, they, they populated the town later, but, you know, that's always mm-hmm. a trope of... Especially the like the eighties uh, slasher movies is that there's never anybody in town because one they didn't have the money for it and two it just muddies up the cast. But in this case, we we get a lot of that. Um, I thought they did a good job of centering everything, and I think one thing that Miss Getty really leaned into was the imagery of those balloons. Man, like from the first mm-hmm. kill when he's killing that Adrian Mellon guy on the side of the riverbank, there there's balloons just flying in front of his boyfriend there and then that you know obscures what happens you know he doesn't get to see all of it and there's always balloons and the final thing pennywise comes out as you know a giant spider creature from a balloon pop and i I like the fact that they just kept that balloon imagery going and going and leaned into it because that's definitely not something that's in the source material and it wasn't something that we've ever seen before and and they decided you know what we're going to lean heavy into this clown motif and all this balloon stuff yeah, it's his calling card, and I thought you were going to bring up the fact that when you probably drove through my neighborhood to get the ho- to my house, you see all these balloons everywhere right now. <laughs> Thankfully, they weren't red. <laughs> I was thinking that would have been really cool if they would have been red. Yeah, there's a yard sale thing going on this week in my subdivision, and people had balloons out to be able to designate that they were yeah. having their house was doing it. So I thought it was kind of interesting timing, but yes, it should have been red. But speaking of that, though, even like the other day, I was driving around, and we went by another movie theater, and that was what they were doing is they put like red balloons coming out of the sewer grates in front of it. So so that's smart. It's, it's kind of a you know good little marketing thing, and you know everybody's got to have their calling card as far as a villain goes. So it's good that you know sure. I'm sure that's why they you know pushed that element to it and everything. But yeah. um, I agree with you too, though the fact that they didn't lean into the spouses too heavily. I mean, they did give Beverly a great moment though when she's leaving her husband after they've had a fight, and she's you know clocked him over the head once, and he's talking about you're nothing without me. She they bother to let her stop and take her wedding ring off and drop it on her stoop as she's walking out of her door. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that they they let her be like, I am done with that life. I'm not going back to that no matter what happens. And one way or the other, Bev wasn't going back to that. Um and I did I did enjoy that. I thought she maybe had one of the best uh walkabout scenes where she and it's just like in the book and, and in the old miniseries too and they blew it in one of the first trailers but where she gets attacked by this old lady that she thinks is, you know, her dad at first and like, no, it's just living in her dad's old apartment and come to find out that the whole place is condemned. She's just, you know, seeing it manifest. I thought that was really effective and well done. And look, I'm getting tired of movies with naked old women running around in them. Like that's been going on a while. M. Night Shyamalan did that to me and the visit. And then, uh, there's a movie called Rare Exports where you hang around in December. You'll hear an episode of us talking about that. Like I'm tired of old people being naked in movies naked. It's getting weird. Yeah. Well, I think it all goes back to the shining and the bathtub scene. I yeah. think that was kind of one of the first ones where it's like, I don't know how any listeners that are young enjoy it now. <laughs> That's the horror of everything is going to your, if you're lucky, you're going to eventually look like that. So. Right. Right. So, but no, I thought I did think Bev's scene, it was the one of the longer ones too. And I thought it went really well. They added something to Bill's character here this time that I thought was pretty neat though, is that, the whole setup has always been that Georgie went out to play in the rain because Bill had the flu and couldn't go out. So that's why he built him the boat so he could go play. But as we find out that Bill was actually pretty okay, like he he was getting over it, but he could have gone out. He just didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And he's blamed himself even subconsciously for that 
all of these years, all 27 years since it happened. And I thought that was a neat wrinkle to add in. It wasn't something I expected. Yeah, yeah. He totally, like, you know, he admitted that, yeah, he was on the mend and he could have totally went out there and played with him, but he just didn't want to. But it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, if anything bad happens to someone that you know, whether they're injured, died, you know, whatever, that you're always going to look at yourself and what all the dominoes that fell over and you're going to blame yourself for one of those and say, I could have prevented it. But when you really look at it, I mean, that's just usually survivor's guilt and everything. Mm-hmm. And that's what really Bill had. And that was kind of his whole crutch here or the thing that he had to basically come over was his survivor's guilt with his brother and stuff. And he does come over when he realizes that, you know what, in the end, no matter what, you know, if it, think of it would have been, whether it's then or it would have been another time, Pennywise would have probably got him. So, I mm-hmm. mean, it's one of those things that he gets over. And I, I like that element because it adds like a little bit of arcs in there for these guys. I mean... Everything, everybody here has like a little bit of an arc, and I'm glad that they did that as opposed to it just being kind of a pure sequel in like the miniseries sense where it's like you're going to add these together and make it one big movie. This one is does, you know, even though it does rely on knowing the first one, it is a standalone movie in its own way that every character, a lot of the characters here do have arcs. I mean, even like mm-hmm. Mike does with his whole coming to terms with the fact that he lied to the group and everything, but you know, he wanted, he had to try this. We had to do something here and everything and how he eventually learns that you know, he was right in that, but they went about it the wrong way in defeating it is that you got to realize that, the, you know, at the end with this big spider creature, which is so much better done than the miniseries. Well, they the had the money this time. I mean, yeah, but $70 million to make this they, movie, But so. the best thing they did about it, though, is they kept it as half clown, half spider. So yeah. that way they're still fighting the creature that you've seen throughout the entire now two movie arc. As opposed to the miniseries where it's like a, you know, Ray Harryhausen, you know, whatever, <laughs> spider. And it has no resemblance at all to Pennywise. And it's just, to me, that was stupid. It should have been somewhat of a clown or something like well, that. Well, the way, the way they do it, and just to describe it, is it's if you laid Pennywise straight out and just grew extra legs out of him and his arms and legs became spider legs, the face is the same. It's Skarsgård doing the performance. You're right. It's basically a clown turned into a big spider yeah. because... That's their experience with Pennywise. Why would he ever show him his true form anyway? Because his true form is just three circling orbs, which, boy, I got to tell you, that, I didn't think you could visualize what it is supposed to be on, like, the astral plane and all that. Because you start reading that stuff in that book or even listening to it in an audio book, that's trippy, man. It's it's hard to figure out what is going on in I that. Don't... And I would say <laughs> it's actually a weak point in the whole story. Mm-hmm. They They made that work in a great way. And... I mean, we get a great deadlight scene on all of that. Um, we should tell, though, that Mike's big lie is that he found out that the, the Native Americans did this ritual of Chud, and he says that's how you defeat it. Nobody figures out, like, wait a minute, then why is it still here? They obviously failed at it. And what he does is he he scratches out the fourth side of the little totem that the Native Americans have given him, which is basically like, and here's where it all went to hell and everybody died. So... He doesn't tell them the truth entirely, and it does split them for a minute, but he ultimately realizes that, like, all we have to do is put it on our size where we can we can damage it. And we'll talk about how they get to that in a minute, but mm-hmm. he does get a neat arc. He does drop out of the movie, though, for a good hour of it. Like, he, he has that scene with Bill where they're doing the Native American peyote trip or whatever, which is which was funny. part Which is the part that I kind of missed a little bit. I had to, That's what I had to go complain about the guy on the phone. But. Yeah, well, you walked in right as the trip was happening. I said, you, you, all I'll do is take a drink. Now, you hear, and again, you get to see McAvoy do his wanted performance again. And I, I like that they unveiled that, but they don't give you everything. Thing. And then, but then he drops out of the movie for a good chunk because we have to follow each person as they go on their little journeys. And we talked about Bev's because it was a big part of the trailer with the, the old lady. Uh, Bend is um, 
he has to go back and he finds his old clubhouse that he built for the kids underneath the ground and they find mm-hmm. all these little totems and you know that's what gets him on the, the march of looking for stuff and uh, he has to go back and he goes back to school and he we get to see where you know it appeared as Beverly to him and then mm-hmm. uh, you know the whole poem and the, the face was on fire I did get a little ghost rider off of that though that was a little funny I didn't need Nick Cage to jump out on a motorcycle <laughs> I've never seen it so <laughs> yeah but his his vision is good. But basically, you see how it, after they had the big fight in the first movie, where they all split apart for a little while, you see what each of them did, and they each had a singular encounter with it in some way or another. Uh, Eddie thinks his mom is being tortured by the leper that tried to assault him out in front of the house on Nebolt Street in a basement of the pharmacy, you know. And uh, we said Ben's was at the high school. Ben's was at her old house. Um, and you, you just get to spend time with everybody. Richie's is the neat one because they unveil something about the Richie character here that's not in the book. And I don't know if it was hinted or not, but they, they, to put it out there is that he got picked on as a kid and called gay and all kinds of, you know, homophobic slurs and stuff, which is what mean kids do when they're growing up, especially in that time period. And what we come to find out in this is that, yeah, he actually is gay and he's been hiding it all of these years. And the person he's most in love with is Eddie. Um, and you know, Eddie doesn't know this, of course, but we get hints of that throughout. And I wanted to ask you what you thought of that character change and reveal here, because it's, it's been, in, you know, it's a big part of the story. It'll definitely be something people talk about. From this. I liked it. It gave Richie a little bit of extra, you know, something else with his character because, you know, you got the love triangle with, you know, Bev, Mike and Ben uh-huh. or not Mike, um, Ben, um, Bill, Bill, and Bev. Yeah. Sorry again. Yeah, it's okay. Mike's just hanging out. The yeah, Mike's Mike's not there or anything like that. So I guess you know with Richie is kind of Richie and Eddie. Uh, to me, I would have thought it would have been like Richie and Stan because it seemed like they were really close mm-hmm. and like Rich was going to his bar mitzvah and everything like that. So it was surprising that he you know had kind of a thing for you know Eddie this entire time. But well, in the book, they are very good friends, mm-hmm. and it's a like they make a big deal out of the epilogue in the book of where everybody goes is Richie goes and gets a part in a movie. And his partner in the movie is very much like Eddie. Gotcha. And, they, and they're good friends. I, the, the thing about it that I'll say is it's an interesting idea. I don't think they sold the son of them in the first movie that those guys were close. And I agree with you. I would have never thought like, well, they, they seem to have changed that dynamic because they changed so much of the group dynamic mm-hmm. that they didn't seem as close as maybe and like the miniseries too. Yeah, and the, and the miniseries, they were close, but they weren't as close as some of the others. Yeah, so it was you, always Richie and Stanley, it seemed right, like. They were right. always kind of like the pair and everything like that. So, I mean, yeah. that, that that's just my thought. But I, I, did, I did like it. It kind of, like I said, it gave Richie a little bit of extra depth and a little bit more character to himself. And mm-hmm. You know, I think even speaking of him, though, the one thing, you know, I'm surprised that they brought into it, which was in the book, was the Paul Bunyan attack when he was a yeah, kid. that looked great, though. Yeah, I mean, it looked fine and everything, and I'm glad. I mean, they pulled it off for the most part, but there's so much stuff in the book that works well in the book, but you know that when you bring it to life, it's just going to be kind of silly. I mean, there was even stuff yeah. with, like, you know, Jaws and everything in the Oh, book. yeah, there, there was that. There was, there was a giant bird that attacked Mike through, like, a, a down standpipe at an old, you know, factory. And, and they, I think that's where he had his originally had, he kind of realized where it came from. From yeah, that with a meteorite or something like that was with their, with that encounter, but yeah, and, that, and that's interesting because the one thing they changed in the last movie was that Ben got the role of being sort of the historian of the town and seemed to know like all this, and now they've just laid it all back on Mike. Is that well, he picked that up and now he knows all the history, and that was how the character was originally. And if you go back and, and remember from that first movie, that was one of my complaints. Is like there was no reason to change that because when you change that, you take away the thing that made Mike 
interesting for the group. I mean, mm-hmm. he, each of those people plays an archetype of something that could be bullied, you know, in, in life. And that's what Stephen King is writing about. You, you've got the abused girl. You've got the stuttering guy who has a family tragedy. Uh, you've got the, um, the kid with the hypochondriac mother that's, you know, overbearing, right? You've got the Jewish kid. So he's super religious and he's, you know, an outcast because he's Jewish. You've got um, the, the fat kid. Um, and then you got the black kid who's also poor. You know, I mean, you got all the archetypes there mm-hmm. uh, for everybody, and then you got the the loudmouth kid that doesn't know how to shut up, right? That's that's what they all were, and who's really doing the humor to mask like his bad home life because then they never really talk about Richie in that in this these two movies, but he had a really rough home life. And I mean, again, he doesn't go back and see anybody from Derry. He barely even remembers he's from the place, and so. <laughs> They've changed so much of those character types, though, that it was weird for them to now go back and now Mike is still the historian because he hasn't left town. He's basically living in the library. Yeah. So for all intents and purposes, he's homeless. Like he's been so consumed with this for the last 30 years that he's put his entire life on hold. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing, too. I wish they would have won. Did with chapter one was give Mike that arc and had him Mm -hmm. be more of the bookie one because. You know, kids are kids are mean, and you know you're already making Ben the fat kid and everything like that. It was like that was you know now to sit there and like oh we're gonna have his character be the nerdy one and everything get picked on because of that as well. I mean it, it was just it would have been better transferred over to Mike considering especially that they followed the book as in part two. Yeah, and that's the thing is they they basically course correct that in the second part, which is fine. I mean it worked out, uh, but it, it is a change of things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Pennywise, though, and what you yeah, thought of Star Forget about Star. him, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, it's easy to do, because he really is only in a few pieces of this, and it's really in the last 20 minutes is where you get most of Skarsgård. Um, you know, I thought his performance was weird and different last time, but mm-hmm. I honestly thought he was probably the best part of it. Um, and I don't know that I'd think any differently this time. I thought he did a good job of being menacing and weird and scary, but also that Pennywise had a lot of tricks up his sleeves. Like, he tricks the one little girl that's got the birthmark on her face when she's like, you're a stranger. I don't talk to strangers. And he's like, oh, boo-hoo. Nobody wants to be my friend. And I'm like, man, that's exactly what a predator does. Like, it's it was well done the way he performed all of that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's trying to play on sympathies and trying to be like, oh, we're one and the same. And then even with the little girl, he's like, I can blow it away and stuff like that. And I'm sure, too, like, you know, she's probably always, you know, heard stuff from her parents. Like, oh, that's your special thing or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, you know, whatever, you know, stuff that parents do to help out kids and everything with, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, he's playing on that, and then he ends up biting the girl on the face and stuff like that and killing her and everything. And one of the child kills, though, the one in the funhouse with this little boy that we keep on seeing throughout the movie. Yeah. So Pennywise basically breaks through the glass and chomps down on this kid, kind of like the shark in Deep Blue Sea with um, (laughs) Samuel Jackson. It blood splatters everywhere, and then disappears. Was that kid actually killed? I don't think he was. I think it was all a lure to get Bill in there to try. Because what happens at the end of that is exactly what Pennywise wants. You know, Bill talks all the time about, like, you can't give into the fear because that's what it wants. And at that moment, he you know he gets a phone call from everybody who's waiting on him at the library. And he's like, I'm going to kill it. I'm not going to drag y'all there. Bye. And he hangs up and he goes off by himself. So Pennywise knows, like, I've got to split him off from the rest of the group because Bill is the leader of yeah. the group. And without him, the rest of them will fold. And I, I don't think that kid gets killed at all. I think Pennywise, using his you know powers, realizes Bill had an encounter with that kid earlier in the, the movie. Like Bill, 
That was a great moment where he... See, I don't even think his Bill's encounter with him. I think he remembers him from the restaurant, and then I think everything else with that kid was Pennywise's illusion because the fact that the kid appears right on the street Mm -hmm. when Bill's remembering when he was talking to the sewers and Pennywise about killing his little brother, and then all of a sudden this Mm -hmm. little kid the same age, you know, pops up there and everything. I think... From that point on, I think everything on that was just a Pennywise illusion. Because even when the kids going through the funhouse, I mean, of course, it's like oh, yeah. Bill's a few steps behind. Can't you know? He's calling out the kid. The kid's ignoring him and everything. And I think it was all that he just used this image as a kid of just to try to get to him. Because every other instance where a kid was killed or whatever, I mean, there was still evidence left over exactly. of the death. And this one just disappears right right away. So. I think you can read it one of two ways. You know, the thing is, is they don't actually find bodies of these kids. The kids just go missing. That's the, the thing. So could he have actually killed him in front of him? Yeah, but I tend to agree with your reading of it that everything that happens at the carnival is just him screwing with Bill to try to throw him off his game and, again, to separate him from the rest of the losers because mm-hmm. without him, they are a mess. And, I mean, it is true. Like, they, they've each got their own powers and bring their own strengths to the group and stuff, but they need him as the steadying force of all of this. And mm-hmm. the way it plays, though, is that the group dynamic here is much more even than the last adaptation. I hate to keep going back and comparing it, but we just have to. I mean, that's just how it is. You got to, because it, yeah. it, it, is, it is a movie that, you know, so many, especially from my generation, remember. So. Exactly, yeah. But, I mean, Richard Thomas had weighed heavy in that group. You could tell. Nobody was doing anything unless he said it. And in the book, it plays that way, too. Um, but by the time they're adults, Mike and Richie and even Eddie to some extent, and then have much more vocal presence as part of the ritual of Chud and things like that, where the first time it's really Bill and everybody else trying to keep him sane and alive while they're going. Um, I thought they evened out the group dynamic where everybody played a part and played a, a role here as they're going to battle with Pennywise. Yeah, everybody's important in this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just basically like, you know, Bill and um, Bev and stuff mm-hmm. being like the top ones. Like even like in the miniseries, it was like, oh, it's got to be Bev because she's the one with the slingshot and everything. God, I'm so glad they got rid of the slingshot. Well, yeah, they totally shirt. took that away. Well, the Blame. whole idea there is that... Bart they, Simpson. They still, well, they still give her the totem. Like she has the, the fence post and she's like, this kills monsters if you believe it. Eddie ends up using that and it sort of works for a little bit. But that's the whole thing with the silver is that the only reason that works is because they all believe in it because they were all kids who grew up watching werewolf movies in the 1950s. You know, and so mm-hmm. they, they, that's what they thought it would work. And because they believed in it, it actually worked. They removed that whole bit this time. I mean, last time I think they had like the cattle gun. And even though it wasn't loaded, it still worked on Pennywise because they believed it would work. And, and that's and, one thing, yeah. actually. What, what I just re- I rewatched the miniseries last week. And if I had to review it again, I'd probably give it a small popcorn because it really <laughs> doesn't hold up at all. It's, it's actually a really bad movie, minus Curry's performance. But even that, though, it's like I can't for 10 minutes worth of material out of three hours. But um, in that one, even though, too, it's like, you know, the whole silver stuff, I never got from that movie that it was, it's, you're not fearing it and believing in it is going to be what does it. Mm -mm. Like, that is not really explained in the miniseries, which I'm so glad in this stuff, they kind of, they explain it. They keep on going through it. It's like, you can't be scared of them. You can't be scared of them. Because that's the whole ending here. And I mean, we might as well get into it. It's like, Mm -hmm. they end up, Bill, Bill's leaving, and he's like, I've had enough, I'm going to kill him. And the rest of the group decides that they're going to go and help him out. They're like, we don't have time to practice. He's on his way doing going to that Nebolt Street the house, and he's going to go down there. So they well, go down. They, to, yeah, they knew where he would go. Yeah, because yeah. it's the only place to access the sewer, you know, mm-hmm. based upon their memory. So they end up going there and going down into, you know, its lair and everything, and then they do the rit- ritual of uh, Chud yeah. or Chud or whatever. It's funny because I've seen the movie Chud, but um, <laughs> don't. <laughs> um, 
so they, they, they're doing the ritual, and basically these three lights go down. They put the totems in there, and they think, like, okay, did we win? Did we do it? And all of a sudden, this big balloon comes out, and Pennywise appears and taunts him and then turns into the half-clown, half-spider. You know, basically, if, you were, if there was a clown in the movie, The Thing... Yeah. This is what it would have turned into. And exactly. And they, and they each get split up at this point while Pennywise is chasing them. And they have to deal with still latent fears. Like Ben mm-hmm. gets in his, he's starting to sink underneath his old. Uh, um, you know what it reminded house. me of? It reminded me of Bill and Ted's bogus journey when yes. they're in hell. And each of them had to go to their own private hell and learn how to basically conquer their fears because that's what it is it's exactly. like you're going back to the stuff in the first movie again but in their adult form and going you gotta be I, able to conquer this? this yeah yeah bill goes to his basement that he has to deal with his georgie in the corner telling him you let me die and then his younger self saying yeah you let him die and he that's his fight with with uh, with himself Pennywise. well and here's the thing is the ritual of chud and it's in the book this way and mike drops this line and i, I picked up on it, he's like you got to remember, y'all, this is a battle of wills. So it's not just going to be physical. We have to outsmart this thing. And each of them has to come to the realization that what is happening to them is not real. And they have to rely on each other to survive. Or you have to turn it on itself. And in Bill's case, he has to forgive himself mm-hmm. for that. He's letting himself off the hook. And he basically takes the cattle gun and shoots his old self in the head because he's like, no, we're, we're going to let this go. We were a good, you know, big brother. This just happens. Just one day, I didn't want to, you know, play with my little brother. It's not the end of the world. If I'm not the reason mm-hmm. he got killed. For Ben, he's sinking underneath that playhouse that he built for his friends, but he's in there alone because he's a little fat boy that's going to die alone. That's what Pennywise is telling him. And for Bev, she gets stuck in that bathroom stall that we first met her in in the first movie where those girls dumped the trash on her. And, you know, the rumor had been out that, like, this was the, you know, biggest scene of blood ever in a movie. Like, imagine the shining elevator blood, but dumped into a bathroom stall on poor Jessica Chastain. She had to be sticky for weeks after that, man. It was a gross scene, but you have her drowning in that with her father taunting her, and her and Ben call out to each other and basically save each other. It's also when they finally realize that, or she finally realizes that Ben's been the guy that's sort of star-crossed for her all these years, even though she can't really remember. Mm-hmm. But they, I like how they, they make them work together, and then they go and save Bill. And then the Richie and Eddie have been you know trapped back in the old Nebo house again with like the very scary, the not scary door. They play it off as a joke. But those two have to work together. Everybody has to work together. And Mike is over to the side trying to bring everybody back into center again so that they can mm-hmm. still continue the battle. And I'm scared of Pomeranian dogs, so that would have <laughs> been bad for me. Because that was one of the gags yeah. in there was Bill was talking about, like, oh, maybe hopefully uh, Pennywise's true form is a, is a puppy. Hopefully, like, a Pomeranian or something like yeah. that. And he opens up one of the doors, and it's a, it's a little Pomeranian that mm-hmm. turns into a monster eventually and tries to get him and everything. But... That was the one thing, though, is like when you watch Eddie, especially earlier in the movie, he takes on it and he ends up fighting back against it when mm-hmm. it's a leper. And he, you know, kind of learns that, you know, you take on your fear. I mean, a lot of this is all just metaphors for your subconscious and yeah. fears and anxieties that everybody has and realizing that it's not, it's only as strong as what you make it. Mm-hmm. And it, once you, if you can conquer it or you can look it in the eye, it's nothing. And, that's Eddie's one of the first ones really to realize that when, you know, he's imagining the leper, you know, you know attacking his mom and everything like that. And it comes out as a leper and he ends up just being like, kind of like, screw this. And he ends up choking it. And later in the movie, when he ends up throwing this, to- um, this like spike or whatever at it and injuring it, he tells, you know, and he ends up getting basically 
punctured skewered, by, yeah, yeah, skewered by it. As he's dying, he's explaining to everybody that, you know, it is kind of a, you know, it's going to be vague, you know, vulgar here. He's a pussy. It's like, you just got to be able to just take it on. And if you guys take it on, I took it on and I strangled him and he was a weak, weak thing. And that's what you guys got to remember. And that's what the group finally does is much but, like in the first movie where it's like, you know what, we're not scared of you because it's going around going, I'm an eater of a world. And they're like, no, you're a pathetic old woman that's running around or you're, you're a clown. This, yeah, well, you're, here's, you're a clown. Here's the thing is he tells them is when I finally had my hands around the thing's throat, I could feel its life going out of it. Mm-hmm. And I knew then I could have it. And Mike has reminded them there's this, and they keep dropping this line that like, it has to obey the rules of the physical world. And they, they come up with this idea of like, when we get it ch- to chase us through a small opening, it'll turn itself small and that way we can stomp it. But that doesn't work because it is sitting right behind him going, what was that again? Okay. And you know, it, it, it and I don't even, up. I don't even know how that would have worked though, because they were <laughs> hiding in a cave and he was too big to get through it. So. I know. Like, how are you going to get him to chase you? You're going to bait him. But I do love that they, they turn something here and Mike says there's another, there's more than one way to make something small. And they realized that what had happened to them and what they shame it. Yeah. And and what Pennywise had done to them is what does he do? He's shaming them. So they come up with ways to shame it to where it basically puddles down into nothing and then they pull its heart out and squeeze it. And I think right there, I mean, they're, they, 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 the message on the sleeve here is that Pennywise is a bully. Exactly. And they even call him a bully. They're like, you know, you're this, you're a clown, you're an old woman, you're this, you're a bully and stuff. And basically sinks it down to nothing to the point where. Richie runs in and rips out his, you know, claw and realizes that, okay, this thing's as, you know, weak as a newborn baby. And then they end up ripping out its heart and destroying it. And, you know, he kind of melts into kind of like a puddle. Kind kind of a puddle. And then it sort of absorbs into the sky too. It's like ashes and stuff. Mm Because you see those three orbs spinning around constantly, especially when it's in active mode, like they're lightning and firing. And again, that's something that's in the book that. I don't know that I had ever visualized in my head, and I have a pretty vivid imagination, but I could never wrap my head around what that was supposed to be. They did a great job of giving that a physical form so that we can see what that looks like. And I, I will mm-hmm. say this about the, the Pennywise character or the being it. At the end, is he talks to them about how you're, you're just children and I'm going to eat you and all this stuff. And at the end, when they're squeezing the heart to death, basically, and crushing it, he has this line of, like, look at you all grown up. It's almost like he's proud of the fact that, like, Finally, you know, because what we learn is this being has been there since the beginning of time and it just goes in this cycle and it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. And at some point, any being has to get tired of this, right? Like it, it comes up and then it gets vanquished because these are not the first people that ever figured out how to beat the thing for a little while. Mm-hmm. They just beat it back quicker than maybe its cycle was supposed to be. And it's almost like it's proud that it was them that took it out. I don't know. I, I kind of read that off of it. I thought it was it was a neat twist at the very end for the evil thing to say thank you. It's uh, I don't know. I just rewatched Heat not long ago, so De Niro shakes hands with Pacino after Pacino guns him down on a field. So it's sort of the same idea. Yeah, I think it's kind of a sign of respect. Like, yeah, my time's done. You guys got me and everything like that. But um, really, what this whole thing is in the, in the end. I mean, we didn't really bring up Stanley much here, and Stanley yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, as everybody knows, he ends up killing himself, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, after it's defeated, and basically everybody's kind of gone on their way. Bev and Ben are a, a couple now. Mike is still in Derry, and uh, you know, Bill goes back to being a writer, writing a new book, and uh, he finally thinks he has an ending that's not going to suck. Yeah. So, <laughs> and uh, Richie, you know, goes back and he's carving, you know, his name and Eddie's name into the bridge and everything, and we get a you get they ends up that they all got a letter from Stanley mm-hmm. to go back to why he killed himself, and it wasn't necessarily he killed himself to get out of doing it. He admits that 
that he's scared mm-hmm. and that he's been scared of too many things his whole life and that he knows that he is the weak link in this and that for him to have come back would have killed them all. That mm-hmm. Pennywise would have used him and that he had to take the, you know, the weak link out of the chain so they could be stronger to be able to defeat him. And really, I mean, that's, I think, the whole entire message of this movie is that fears are only as, or things that you fear is only as strong as what you believe they are. Right. And that's what I think Pennywise has always represented is childhood fears of, you know, stuff that, you know, you probably look at and go, that was crazy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Why was I scared of that? But it's stuff where, you know, stuff that you were scared of as a kid or traumatic things that happened to you as a kid that sometimes the only way you can move on with your life is to go back and to face those fears and to realize that you're stronger because of them mm-hmm. and there's nothing to scare, be scared of anymore. And I think really that's the entire it, message of the movie. And it's also to know what your role is in the, the whole process. And I'm not advocating for people to take themselves off the board. I want to be very clear about that. Stan's character makes that choice because, as you said, he and Bev share something. They can actually see and have seen versions of what is happening. Because she was in the deadlights, and she drops on everybody earlier, I've dreamed about all of us coming together and dying since that day for the last 30 years. So she's like, the fact that she's not totally insane from that is one amazing thing. But she sees them die over and over again. And they share a moment with the kids when Stan's like, what do I look like when I'm older? And she's like, just taller. She knows he's dead, too. Like, she knows that, and he knows it, too, because... It had its you know mouth around him right there at the end, so he was exposed to it as well. So he shares that with her that he knows if I come back, we're all going to die because I'm going to freak out and it's going to cost us. And mm-hmm. so I am going to make the choice of self sacrifice because I know it's what the group needs. And ultimately, like in growing up and learning how to do anything, you, you learn how to face your fears. You let yourself off the hook for stuff that. You shouldn't be guilty for. That's Bill's real arc here. And you also learn how to make the big step that you're afraid to make. We see Beverly has been really successful, but we know the story with her husband, Tom. She married somebody just like her father, mm-hmm. right, who's just as abusive. And we get a little insight into the abuse. Like, that's always played off as, like, he was some sort of pedophile or whatever. He was, but his reasoning for it is even more sinister. Her mother died having her, and he is obsessed with, you know, his dead wife. And so he like sprays her perfume did all over Bev. Did, did she die having her? Cause I thought she made mention that she killed herself. Her, is that what it was? Okay. Yeah, see, I never sounded, was clear on that. It so. sounded like she was sick. Maybe that's it. Okay. Maybe she was dying of cancer or something. And you know, sometimes, you know, when that happens, some people are just like, I'm going to go out on my own terms. Maybe and, so. Maybe, well, that, e- either way though, mm-hmm. that's why he had, attached onto Beverly in, in such a sick way. And she had to learn how to let that go and understand that like, look, that was his drama and trauma, and I I took care of it. I knocked him mm-hmm. out, and I left. And the fact that I repeated that mistake, her leaving that ring on that step, to me was like saying, no matter what happens, I'm not coming back here with this dude because I'm done with this in my yeah. life. But she has to learn how to do that. Eddie has to learn that he's a lot stronger than he thinks he is. I mean, they play it off as a joke, too, is that, you know, you've done all this thing. Oh, well, Richie gives him your body mask. Yeah, Richie gives him a good pep talk. A neat note there, the actress that played his mother in the flashback scene and in the first movie plays his wife in the cameo here as well. So he literally married his mother. Yeah, which is funny because Bev marries her dad and Eddie marries his mother. Exactly, right. But that was why I think that was one of the funniest scenes in the movie because, again, like you said, like Bill Hader was definitely the all-star of the whole... Oh, yeah. yeah. He got all the good comedy. He and James Ransom really got all the good comedy, but... Yeah. The the smart thing, though, because, look, that's the one thing the miniseries got right, too. Let Harry Anderson do the jokes because that's all he knows how to do anyway. And so he cracked the joke. Bill Hader just got to do it with, you know, the R-rated filter that he has. And he's funny. The guy is just funny. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I do love that, like, the last thing Eddie says is, like, I had your mom. You know, <laughs> you know, like, they have that little running your mama joke back and forth for 30 years, and it, it ends here, too. Mm-hmm. But, no, the whole you're right. The whole point is learning how to deal with your own trauma and learning that you have a role to play in this and play your role and mm-hmm. be who you are and don't be afraid of that. I mean, there's even a voiceover of that at the end. And I, I don't know. I, I like though that they, you know, they took away Beverly's uh, super shooter powers or whatever with the slingshot, but they gave her clairvoyance or at least a version of clairvoyance. And the fact that, you know, in the end of it, like Ben says, how'd you sleep? She's like, I had a great dream. You know, it's like the first time she's probably said that in 30 years. You know? Yeah. Cause she even said that too. I mean, throughout the movie is that she always had bad dreams about this type of stuff. Like yeah. she had some vague memory of what happened or what's to come. And that's what always haunted her when she slept and everything. But yeah. I mean, well, when she was in the deadlines, mm-hmm. she saw them all come back when they were older and what she didn't tell them when they were kids. And she tells them as adults is I saw all of us die. So she saw a version of what could have been the future. And she even saw, too, the, the future where if they would have ran away. Yeah. Where she said, yeah, well, if we run away and we decide we're going to do this when we're older, we're not even going to make it to when we're older. We're all going to die, you know, early deaths. I mean, these people are probably all, you know, probably close to my age, you know, like, you know. Oh, they're, mid, all, they're all supposed mid, to be late 30s, yeah, early 40s. Yeah, like late 30s. I guess I'm not late 30s. I'm mid-30s. But, uh, yeah. Make myself feel better. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So late, late, late 30s. But, um. So where she basically told everybody in the movie where it's like, yeah, you know, if you run away, we're all going to be dead within 20 years anyways, whether it's because of it or whether because of the circumstances around us that would lead us to our deaths, whatever. And basically what they learned is that they could run away and have a little bit of life or they could try to take on it and basically have their own future be a mystery and everything. So. Well, yeah, they, they can take control of their lives and mm-hmm. not give in to their fear. And that's the thing Pennywise is counting on is that they will give up. And that mm-hmm. they won't do it or that he can split them apart enough. And as we've talked about, it doesn't work. They're mm-hmm. finally able to vanquish him. Um, I, you know, I, this movie is, there's a lot that goes on in it, man. And, I, you know, again, we're kind of doing a raw reaction to it here. So it's not the full, like, step-by-step review. Um, I do think that the decisions that they made in this make this a much more compelling watch. Even though it does go on a little too long. In my opinion, it, this is much easier to go back through because I rewatched that first one earlier this week mm-hmm. again just to have it in my head. And I'm not gonna lie, man, this part of it's only like two hours and ten minutes long. And there's part of that that I was just checking out. I was like, oh, please just get to the end of this. And I felt like it was long. This one, as long as it is, I didn't feel the length as much, except for the Bauer stuff, which didn't really need to be there. Yeah, I think a lot of it, though, helps is because they break the narrative structure by doing flashbacks and everything yeah. and then kind of seeing the reactions, which mm-hmm. brings me to even what my thoughts are on this, is that I think a lot of the beginning structure of this movie with the calls and how they didn't have them do flashbacks right there was done purposely, that they could somehow edit Chapter one and chapter two, almost into this big like opus of a movie. You kind of like Godfather saga. Yeah, now. and actually follow more of the structure of the book because in the book, mm-hmm. it's all taking part. It's all taking place in the adult world, but all the kid stuff is done in flashbacks, and that's how they're remembering stuff. And I really think that mm-hmm. they've set that up as far as how they've edited this movie and what they filmed for this movie to be able to really combine them both, to almost kind of do that book thing justice whether it'll work or not i don't know i mean i think it might be kind of a neat experiment and something i definitely will watch if they do it and i'm also sure that given the amount of fan edits out there there's some you know people out there kind of you know already starting to think about it but muskini has said as much that he is working on some cut that will intersplice all of it together because the Mm -hmm. the coolest thing about the book and the thing that they haven't done 
that I think would work like if you did like a limited television series, like if, you know, FX or, or somebody like HBO or Hulu or something did this over like 10 episodes is the stories are told concurrently. Like you get 1980s and 1950s, the way it's done in the book. So you do mm-hmm. kid time and adult time and the attacks with it happen simultaneously. Mm-hmm. In the book, which is a neat way to watch that unfold because you see two versions of the ritual of Chud, the one that worked and the one that didn't work. The one thing they didn't put in here, which I, I'm going to go ahead and say I wish was still part of this story, which is to me is the best part of the book. The ending of the book goes on really long. Like we should say, like the last quarter of it is not about it at all. It's after it is dead. The whole town basically gets washed away because it's almost like the town has to be rebaptized after that evil has been washed out of it. And that, to me, would be a cool thing to have seen visualized, that the whole place just gets flooded out, and then they have to start over completely fresh and new. And we get a little bit of that because they all go to their you know, cliff diving spot, and they wash off together, and they have you know these moments together, and they're kind of reborn that way. But that's something that I, I have always missed from the adaptations of this, is that they didn't do that. And I, you know, I don't know if they ever filmed that or thought about it, um, but I'm with you. I, I'm curious to see if they do indeed come out with a director's cut of it where it's all spliced together, Godfather Saga style, how that would work and if it would mm-hmm. you know, be as good. Because I will definitely watch it, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think the reason they don't do the flood stuff in this is because Derry is more of a character in the book than it is in the movies. Where, you know, in the book they have, I mean, being, what, 1,200, 1,100 pages, whatever the hell it is. It's, yeah. they got, he has a lot of interludes where they talk about the history of Derry and do all this. So mm-hmm. Derry is much more of a, of a character in the book oh. than it is in the movies. Where in the movie it's just a setting. In the, in the book, like I said, it's a character. So Absolutely. that's one of the reasons why. And I think they do accomplish that. You know what I mean? They got rid of the child you know, gangbang scene or whatever, and yeah, replaced that with a blood oath. Yeah, and then, nobody uh, needed that. Yeah, no so. one needs that. Even <laughs> yeah. Stephen King admits that was a mistake. Yeah. And even, uh, you know, and then I think the whole, like, washing the town clean aspect is done with them washing themselves clean with doing the, you know, the quarry jump that they do and washing <laughs> themselves off and everything. So Yeah. No, it, it definitely works better, and I'll be curious to see where it comes from this. I mean, this thing, again, is opening huge. I have no doubt it will make a boatload of money. It's probably going to get near $600 million at Well, least. you never know what's going to happen yeah. in the future. I mean, Stephen King mm-hmm. and some of his books, I know the Tommyknockers as well mm-hmm. as Dreamcatcher have all made illusions that Pennywise is still alive. So right. you never know. I mean, mm-hmm. WB is a business, and you know, I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised somewhere, somehow, if they even do like a It prequel. They've talked about show. that, yeah. Yeah, going back mm-hmm. to like, you know, maybe the... Indians that you know did the ritual, or maybe even like the beginning of Dairy with the foundation explosion and stuff, and kind of you know doing it that way. So I wouldn't be shocked. But it's time to do final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So Nick, what are yours for It Chapter Two? I'm going to go with the same thing I went with It Chapter One. I'm going to give it a large popcorn. I really enjoyed the movie. Um, you know, it was long. I thought it was a little bit too long, but you know what? I'm not going to knock a movie for being too long as opposed to being way too short and playing it safe. I mean, this movie was brutal. I mean, they not many times you can see kids killed in such a graphic way yeah. on film, and I think it had a lot of great performances. Bill Hader, amazing. By the way, if you had never seen the show Barry on HBO, really check that out, because that's, that's why he brings a lot of the same acting chops from that show into this, because it's, it's a dark comedy. But, um, yeah, I, I really, really, really did enjoy this, and I can't wait to... You know, I'm not going to go see in the movie theater again, because three hours is a long time on the butt, so I'll wait till the 4K version comes out and hopefully it can be like a three disc one where you got chapter one, chapter two and some hybrid combo one. 
I'm going to upgrade my, my rating on this from last time. I gave that last one a medium popcorn because I just thought it was fine, but it didn't really give me much to work off of. This is definitely large popcorn. It's a much more satisfying thing to see. And that's interesting because the second half of the miniseries is bad. Anybody will tell you that. Even I'll tell you that. And I'm a fan of the thing. And the second half of the book is not as good as the, as the setup to it. When they finally get through the original Chud, I mean, it's interesting to watch the town destroyed, but all the epilogue stuff is just... It just goes on too long. Again, the king doesn't know how to stick an ending. Mm -hmm. They figured this out, and the, the changes they made here were smart. And I really have to credit the screenwriter and the people that did the punch-up on the dialogue. And I have a feeling that Hayter did a lot of his own stuff in this. Um, but the actors all came to play. They give a great performance. The director's totally in charge of the camera. we got a different cinematographer this time, but the CGI looks good. It's fun. I don't think I'll see it in a theater again either because I think three hours is too much for me in a theater. But it's definitely one that I'm going to add to my, my growing digital collection when it comes out because I've already got chapter one on the voodoo, so I'll definitely have to add this to it. Um, and I know that's how my wife said she wanted to see it. She didn't want to sit through the theater experience of it. So large popcorn for me. Definitely recommend to see it. And uh, definitely worth your time. Much more worth your time and a better experience, I think, than last time. And I'm curious to see if they can expand to the It universe or whatever. And I still think someday down the line, one of these companies, Amazon, Hulu, whatever, are going to turn this into like a, a, a mini series again, but over like nine or 10 episodes and do the whole concurrent thing and just stretch it all out. I do think the material's worth it. But, you know, a lot of Stephen King stuff's getting remade, man. They're doing the stand. They're doing the Tommy Knockers again. They might take another swing at Dreamcatcher because goodness knows they missed it the first time. We've ever seen that movie. Uh, so lots of stuff to come from him, but this is definitely one of the better adaptations of any of Stephen King's works. So large popcorn for me as well, and glad we got to watch it. Folks, glad you joined us here for this real special edition of Film Strip. We're throwing this on out a lot earlier than we normally would have. Usually this would have been our mid-September review, but since we were doing it basically live right after having seen it, want to get it out to you quick. We'll be back at the end of the month. Kurt and I are picking back up with Stanley Kubert. We're doing Barry Lyndon, which is a very... I don't know, controversial film in his filmography. It's not one that people tend to go to or talk about, but Kurt and I had a good review of that. And then, Nick, we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up in what mm -hmm. we call Shocktober. Uh, we've got four big movies coming up. I'm not going to spoil all of them here, but we're kicking it off. You and Ron and I reviewed the original Puppet Master. <laughs> yeah, definitely we did. Um, that was an interesting show, an interesting movie. And uh, I think uh, Jay found his catnip with that movie because he's got some <laughs> confessions about what he's even done after watching that movie. Yes, so, yes. Uh, You'll have to tune into that episode in October to find out. We've got a couple of special guests coming on for the mid-show, and then Brian and I are wrapping it up with Halloween. So that's all I'll say about Shocktober right now. And then, of course, we've got stuff for November and December already recorded, lined up, and uh, more fun and friends coming on to join us on the podcast. Of course, you can always find all the episodes on our podcast at filmstrippodcast.com. That's where you'll go to the Anchor site. You'll see the link where you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, all the places you find podcasts. Please leave us a positive review if you like the show. That helps bump the thing up in the ratings and the algorithms and helps other people find the show. And please share it on social media. You can follow the show at FilmstripPod on Twitter or join the Filmstrip Podcast page on Facebook. We appreciate your support. So until next time, Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.